Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Since U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement last month, speculation about his replacement has ramped up. Today we're going to talk about President Biden's nomination decision and the future of the court, including uh, such questions as these. Who's, who, will, who will the president nominate? How likely is it that Roe v. Wade is overturned in the near future? What are some of the big cases to watch in this session of the court and in future sessions? Our guest for the hour is Ronell Anderson-Jones, Lee E. Teitelbaum Professor of Law, University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. Uh, Professor Jones is a former newspaper editor and reporter and a First Amendment scholar who teaches, researches, and writes on legal issues affecting the press and intersection between media and the courts, with particular emphasis on the United States Supreme Court. Ronell Anderson-Jones, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Hi, nice to be with you. Um, So later in the hour, I'd love to get into some uh, First Amendment issues. Of course, on our minds right now is is the vacancy at the Supreme Court. Uh, We have greater specificity um, in in this one than maybe uh, previous uh, nominations because President Biden has pledged to nominate a black woman. Uh, Who who are some of the names being floated? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, we have greater specificity, although in a sense, we have less specificity because uh, last time around, uh, President Trump, then candidate Trump, had uh, produced an actual physical list of the folks from whom he committed to choose uh, his nominee. Uh, the, the list was relatively short, and he uh, had promised as a campaign matter that he would choose from it. Uh, President Biden uh, has promised uh, to uh, nominate someone who is a black woman to the United States Supreme Court, uh, did that as a candidate, and has now recommitted um, in the wake of this retirement to do so. The two uh, people who are probably on the very top of the shortlist are Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is a federal appellate court judge in Washington, D.C. She became a federal appellate court judge just last year. And uh, but was a, a federal district court judge for a number of years before that and has been sort of floated on um, short lists for a lot of years. Uh, importantly, or interestingly, at least, uh, she uh, was a law clerk at the United States Supreme Court uh, early in her career for Justice Breyer, who is the justice who's departing. So there's an interesting uh, sort of legacy connection there. The other name that is um, way up at the top of the list is Leandra Brown, uh, uh, who uh, Kruger, Leandra Brown Kruger, who uh, she is a um, justice of the uh, California Supreme Court. Um, she also clerked at the United States Supreme Court and has argued you know, something like twelve or thirteen cases before the Supreme Court um, as a lawyer, um, an incredibly well-respected um, jurist and. Uh, legal scholar and and so uh I, I think those are the those are the two top names that i hear talked about a lot and that i i would be quite surprised if the nominee that we're going to get sometime before the end of february isn't one of those two folks um the, some of the names i've seen being floated and uh, always the caveat that the you know not the likeliest are some uh, non-judges and that's kind of an always a running argument that some people say we ought to, uh, you know, move beyond the, you know, the who we always go to, which are, which are you know, appellate judges. Yeah, I think I uh, you, we hear that conversation every time that there is a new uh, vacancy at the court. And of course, uh, the the Constitution doesn't specify any qualifications for serving on the United States Supreme Court, except that you have to be nominated by the president and uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate. Uh, and there have, of course, been uh, folks who have sat on the court 
over the course of its history who did not rise through that more traditional pattern of being uh, either a federal appellate court judge uh, or being, um, uh, uh, as we see now, a justice on a state Supreme Court. Uh, There have been people, um, some some of the um, most famous justices uh, in all history have elevated to the court from other political branches, right, Um, serving as president um, before going to be chief justice of the Supreme Court or um, serving as governor of California before going to do so. And so there is... um, there, there are there are multiple paths, and we see uh, in discussion amongst people who are talking about the current vacancy, a couple of people who are um, uh, lawyers in activist spaces, a couple of people who are quite well regarded uh, law professors and scholars. Um, but the traditional path um, in modern times has been to move through a judgeship, and I would be quite surprised if we didn't have a nominee who had at least some judicial experience. One of the reasons given by people who are proponents of the non-traditional path is uh, we need different life experiences um, in in there. And that leads me to a question. Uh, you know, you've clerked. You clerked for uh, Justice Sandra D. O'Connor, right? You've, you've been there. Um uh, there's always a debate on how much personal experience does bleed through and uh, how much personal experience has an effect on it versus uh, some people put forward the ideal that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a purely legal reasoning, uh, you know, uh, process. I wonder if we talk a bit about that. Yeah, so um, I, th- I think that's a, a really interesting question, and I think Justice O'Connor is actually a really great example of that. Uh, she herself uh, came to the Supreme Court after a promise similar to the promise that um, President Biden has made, uh, that is, uh, a promise um, by a president uh, and in a campaign to try to diversify the bench to better reflect um, the wider set of experiences and the wider set of people who are um, living in the United States and um, uh, obliged uh, to listen to and follow the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan made a campaign promise that he would elevate the first woman to the United States Supreme Court, and Justice O'Connor was the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, interestingly, um, just as an aside, uh, assuming that uh, President Biden does fulfill his promise to elevate a black woman um, to the United States Supreme Court, it will be the first time uh, in history that the bench is close to uh, equal in terms of gender. Uh, there would be there would be four women uh, and five men, uh, which is a remarkable arc in just the lifetime of Justice O'Connor, um, who was the first to join uh, in the 1980s. So uh, I do think uh, to your to your broader question, the 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 desire to have um, people from multiple backgrounds, uh, people who represent a wider array of the public, uh, people who can speak um, from their own life experiences to the issues that might come before the Supreme Court in ways that help them think carefully using those legal tools that you described, I think is a desire that a lot of folks have reflected. A lot of folks from both sides of the aisle have um, found that to be important. Uh, The justices aren't meant to be a political branch. They aren't meant to reflect the will of the public in the way that the elected branches are. In fact, uh, in some respects, they're meant not to do that. They're meant uh, to uh, adhere to the principles of the Constitution uh, in um, ways that uh, might occasionally be counter-majoritarian, but um, hold true to constitutional values. But they they also um, are real humans (laughs) and have um, life experiences that 
um, generate good conversations there. And um, a lot of folks think that, it, that it's unhealthy for us to have them be all graduates of the exact same sets of schools or have all the exact same life experiences in ways that might not serve that deliberation well. Um, I wonder how much uh, the justices... Uh, I, I know that the Chief Justice, uh, well, at least I suspect the Chief Justice, cares how the uh, how people view the court, right? The, the, there's been at least speculation that uh, that he's uh, he maneuvers sometimes to to uh, with a view that uh, you know we need to secure our legitimacy, we need to be viewed as I don't know impartial or or you know doing justice. Um, I wonder if you talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I think that that's really true. I mean, one of the things that I teach my first-year law students in constitutional law is we, we come to explore the way that the court came to hold its power in our uh, constitutional system of checks and balances, and it's actually a very delicate position that the court holds. Uh, it doesn't have uh, any uh, power of the purse uh, like Congress has. It doesn't have any you know, dollars of its own, and it, it doesn't have um, any army, right? It's not like the president who has commander-in-chief powers, the only thing it has uh, to um, wield its power, to get us to obey the orders that it hands down, are um, its own you know, goodwill and legitimacy, the trust that we, the people, and that the other branches of government hold in it to exercise that power of judicial review uh, and to um, adhere to its principles of precedent and a good legal judgment. And it's sensitive to that. It's sensitive to the fact that um, that's the way that it continues to be able to operate in the system of separation of powers is to continue to hold on to that legitimacy. And my, uh, my suspicion is that you're right, that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts in particular has a sensitivity to that. Um, he's the Chief Justice of the Court. Uh, history will uh, look back on this court and call it the Roberts Court. He will care a lot about uh, the continued legitimacy um, and viability of its, its, its institutional integrity on his watch. And we do see him in a number of uh, hot-button cases over the, uh, over the course of his time as Chief Justice. He's been um, very Solomonic. Uh, he's tried to... Uh, to take some steps to soften what might otherwise be perceived by the public as sort of wildly counter-majoritarian efforts or um, uh, efforts for the uh, for um, political majorities on the court to um, take actions that might not reflect the will of the people, and so they're walking a very careful line there. And in in recent um, years and even in recent months, we've seen um, some heightened sensitivity from justices of the court, right? They, they can tell that the court's reputation within uh, the public is a, is a topic of conversation, and they, they want very much to preserve that reputation for uh, neutrality, for being a non-ideological body, and rather uh, one that is engaging in law rather than politics. So a related topic is sort of parenthetically, um, maybe talk a little bit about what we could call free speech rights of the justices themselves um, and the rights and responsibilities. Uh, Justice Scalia was, you know, talked quite a bit outside the court. Um, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, I don't know that she made public statements, but it, you know, it uh, w- we perceived her, her opinion of the, the former President Trump, right? Um, there's, there's a balance there that the, I guess they're, they're always continuing to, uh, to straddle, I guess. 
Yeah, there's uh, there's something of a um, an ongoing conversation about this, and a bit of a division of opinion about uh, the justices, I guess, uh, as public figures. Um, we occasionally, and, and in fact, um, in in recent weeks, have seen uh, this issue arise again. See, uh, for example, justices giving speeches to uh, pr- private groups, groups of lawyers or groups of students, um, uh, uh, groups that um, have ideological bent that um, aren't open to the public or aren't open to reporters. And um, some have expressed concerns about the notion of uh, right, justices speaking. Some have, some have expressed concerns about the notion of justices speaking out on legal issues at all publicly, uh, um, particularly if those the commentary sort of veers into the territory of cases that might uh, or are currently appearing before the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, the, the justices overall, I think, have a sensitivity to this notion. Uh, they, um, they, they want to be seen as um, uh, doing good work on behalf of the country, but they also have um, a, a need uh, to be uh, perceived as nonpartisan. Um, and um, my guess is that Chief Justice John Roberts um, among the concerns that he has are concerns that the justices on his court uh, might be compounding some of the problems that we talked about earlier by um, aligning themselves um, with these uh, speeches or by um, not giving uh, public access to them. Do you think the the public's view of the court has, has shifted over the last, I don't know, decade or, or so? Um, certainly the confirmation process can't have helped um, a, a view of impartiality. The the data um, tell us that this is the case uh, that um, the public perception and the uh, public regard for the U.S. Supreme Court is in decline, and um, a part of this is that um, the Supreme Court it, it used to be something that um, ordinary people spoke of much less often. Uh, uh, it has become a politicized institution in ways um, that we didn't necessarily see before, and we saw uh, the ways in which um, it, it became a campaign issue. Um, it, it, there's a um, there's a um, it, it cuts both ways when you see uh, people talking about the justices more. There there is some chance that we have a heightened awareness of the Supreme Court and of its value in our uh, society and of uh, you know who the justices are. There's a, uh, a sort of general elevating of awareness um, and sort of civic awareness of the Supreme Court and what it does and the importance of what it does, the important the ways that the decisions that it makes um, have real impact on the lives of us as Americans. But there is also the flip side of this. If we have uh, presidential candidates who are uh, sort of actively campaigning on promises that they will elevate justices who will take particular actions, or particularly that if they will elevate justices who will, um, you know, reverse particular precedent, that uh, cuts against uh, the, the, the sort of core value system that we tend um to hope to adhere to at the Supreme Court with um, neutral decision making and not um, uh, sort of prejudging cases and uh, and also not regularly um, overturning precedent, having precedent be something by which um, all justices going forward are bound. And so that creates a tension in ways that we um, perhaps haven't seen before and um, might be leading to some of the, uh, the division of opinion amongst Americans about the Supreme Court itself. Mm. I want to talk a bit about the confirmation process. I, I know there was some uh, pressure from from some groups, liberal groups, who wanted uh, Justice Breyer to retire because the you know the president and the Senate are aligned right now. And it may not be so, you know, next year. 
Um, and that illustrates a kind of a hardening of the confirmation process, of course, that we've all seen in recent years. Yes, uh, uh, those sorts of pressures, I think, have been in existence for a long while. They're just uh, more on the surface uh, at the moment. But it, uh, it was undoubtedly the case that um, liberal groups uh, uh, wished for Justice Breyer, who was uh, well into his 80s, <laughs> and, and so uh, of retirement age, uh, to choose to do so at a time when uh, uh, Democrats control both the presidency and the Senate. And um, uh, there was uh, sort of a palpable um, sigh of relief amongst those groups upon um, his announcement that he, he will do so uh, at the conclusion of this term or um, I guess at the conclusion of this term and when his um, replacement has been confirmed. To your, to your wider point, I do think that we have seen um, incredible partisan uh, bitterness in the confirmation process, and it, it, we don't actually have to look um, that far back in time to see an era in which this was just absolutely not the case. As early as, you know, as recently as, uh, you know, the 1960s or so, uh, there were voice vote approvals at the Senate. Just It was just understood that the advice and consent of the Senate was sort of a, um, a formality that, uh, of course, we would defer to the president's preferences on nominees. And uh, even after that, when we moved to actual voting, uh, a, a number of justices who have recently been on the Supreme Court had uh, near unanimity across party lines, uh, you know, 98, 99 to zero confirmation votes for um, leading uh, judicial conservatives and, um, and liberals. And Justice Breyer himself, who is stepping down, uh, was confirmed to the position by an 87 to 9 vote um, you know, less than 30 years ago. So um, uh, when we contrast that to the more recent episodes, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, the last member of the court who was confirmed by the Senate, didn't receive a single Democratic vote. Uh, and so it was uh, you know, 53 to 47 on um, exact party lines. There's every reason to believe that that might be the case in the opposite direction this time around. And Democrats have a bare um, uh, sort of 50 seat uh, majority, uh, uh, the nominee this time around might be the very first person elevated to the United States Supreme Court by a tie-breaking vote of the vice president. So we can see the arc of this has just really taken um, quite a turn for the partisan. Yeah, it uh, was in stark relief with the uh, recent health problems of uh, Senator Ben Ray Lujan in, in New Mexico, right? <laughs> if, he, if he's out for, for surgery or whatever, the Democrats lose their, lose their majority you know, temporarily. Yes, it is very, very skin of the teeth, right? You can't afford for anyone to be ill, uh, for anyone um, to be absent for any reason. Um, I think that Democrats hope, um, like the, the sort of highest hope that they might have here, is that because this new replacement doesn't actually shift the uh, the actual ideological balance of the court, right? This is, uh, they would be replacing a liberal justice with a liberal justice. Um, and uh, the fact that the nominee we know, uh, because Biden has told us, will be an African-American woman, that this might um, sort of stave off a kind of, you know, scorched earth campaign um, when uh, the likelihood is great that uh, it will proceed. And they also might hope, um, particularly if the nominee is Ketanji Brown-Jackson, um, who, as we said, um, was a nominee for the federal appellate court just last year and got a handful of 
uh, Republican votes, that she might be able to pull along with her those same Republican votes on on the notion that it would be inconsistent for them to vote against her, uh, you know, one year later after having voted for her um, uh, previously. Uh, we're due for a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have more with Ronnell Anderson-Jones, uh, who is... Um, at the uh, University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. She's Lee Teitelbaum, professor of law there. And we're talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has announced his retirement at the end of this term, and uh, President Biden is uh, due to nominate uh, someone here coming up uh, shortly. Uh, we're keeping an eye on this, and uh, we'll get into talking about how this might affect uh, the future years, future decisions in the court uh, following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, providing support, services, and funding for creative individuals and cultural organizations across the state of Utah. More at artsandmuseums.utah.gov. Support also comes from utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Did you know that kindergartners can learn to code? Coding toys, which allow children to program simple sequences of light, sounds, or actions, are becoming more and more accessible to parents and educators. Research is ongoing to determine how these toys can enhance problem-solving skills and help foster early computational thinking. By studying the way kindergartners think and reason, researchers hope to evaluate the effectiveness of such toys so that educators can make more informed decisions about the toys they use in early childhood settings. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court uh, today, and uh, we're talking with Ronald Anderson-Jones, Lee E. Teitelbaum, Professor of Law at University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. Professor Jones uh, clerked with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, uh, Professor Jones is also a former newspaper reporter and editor and First Amendment scholar. Um, we're going to be talking a bit about some of those issues later in the program. Uh, so... Uh, this nomination will not um, affect the the current six to three conservative to liberal balance on the court. That's my first question. This segment to Professor Jones, um, you know, Senator McConnell and uh, others, uh, a long decades long project, and uh, now it appears they're successful. Six to three, a pretty solid majority. Can we expect conservative rulings to come down the next decades? Uh, yes, I uh, I think so. I think maybe not just the next decades. I think in the coming months, uh, we, pr- we probably um, will see that. Uh, you're right that, um, the, uh, that there was a, a concerted effort uh, to shift the balance of the courts um, during, particularly during the Trump administration, and um, that that was that was successful with a, n- a number of uh, Trump uh, nominees and confirmations uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. It uh, it will now be even uh, even with even assuming this the. Uh, the successful confirmation of the Biden nominee now, a 6-3 court um, 
for the foreseeable future until um, some other departure from the court's conservative um, majority. And even then, uh, there would need to be two departures from the court's conservative majority with um, replacements to the left in order to to alter that balance. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is now uh, the court's uh, sort of ideological median. He is the midpoint. Um, uh, 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 there's a temptation to call the person who is the the, mid, the midpoint justice on the U.S. Supreme Court the swing vote. Um, uh, but he uh, he, he is um, he's not an ideological moderate. Um, he is um, um, sides with his conservative colleagues on most matters, and so there's every reason to believe uh, that in a number of uh, key cases that come before the court this term and in the terms to come, the uh, the uh, the balance of um, in some of these um, serious uh, sort of hot topic issues that are at the center of our culture wars may see some shifts in constitutional doctrine. Uh, what about Roe v. Wade? That's on a lot of people's minds. Will, will that, is that likely? How likely is that to be overturned, uh, outright overturned in the next, I don't know, few years? Uh, there is a case on the court's docket this term, a case called Dobbs that is out of Mississippi. It challenges a um, a statute that is on the books in Mississippi that uh, would be, that is unconstitutional under the doctrine as it now stands under uh, Roe versus Wade and the subsequent case, uh, a subsequent case called Casey uh, that establishes that there's a constitutional right uh, to an abortion um, at a certain stage. The, uh, the Mississippi case. Uh, bans abortion um, from 15 weeks on, which is inconsistent with the current doctrine, which um, uh, rises and falls on um, fetal viability, uh, which uh, uh, the the current consensus is that there isn't fetal viability at 15 weeks. And that case has been argued already. It was argued uh, at the Supreme Court in December, and we should get an answer from the justices of the Supreme Court by the end of their term. So, June or early July of this year at the latest. Uh, the signals at oral argument in this case um, suggested, if we're sort of counting noses, uh, that it, that the um, the uh, that Mississippi will win this case. Uh, that is, that there will be a shift in abortion doctrine. Whether the court will go the full distance to uttering the words that um, Roe versus Wade um, is overturned uh, is not perfectly clear. The the factual sort of um, consequence will likely be that there will be, that many more abortion bans in this country will become constitutional uh, by the end of this term. Uh, What about precedents? That's one thing you can always uh, count on, really, right, for prospective justice uh, in front of the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate will, you know, uh, give a lot of pre- a lot of weight to precedent. And of course, precedent is precedent up until it's overturned, I guess. But um, I wonder if you talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's the, um, it, it ties back to some of the points that we were making earlier about the court's own sensitivity to its institutional integrity and its goodwill with the people and, um, and its goodwill with the other branches of government, its sort of sensitive spot within our system of separation of powers. We, um, uh, we can suspect that the justices have, uh, that are, are highly attuned to this. And so while the new uh, 6-3 conservative majority um, likely uh, holds a set of views that differ with um, some positions that are currently precedent at the Supreme Court, 
they uh, are, are uh, we might expect that they would want to proceed with caution, that they owe allegiance to cases that have already been decided and uh, on which uh, people in the American public rely. And the the, there's a doctrine called stare decisis that binds them to hold to those views unless there's a very uh, compelling reason not to do so. And the court um, uh, will it, is probably going to sort of carefully choose its cases in the terms to come so as not to be seen uh, as an institution that um, is uh, throwing precedent to the wind. Um, that said, there's also uh, um, a, a sort of sense of moment at the court amongst the, the conservative justices and um, amongst those uh, who uh, pushed hard for those conservative justices to, to bring about um, fairly bold change in constitutional doctrine. And so the tension between those two spaces is something that we're going to see in the in the years to come. This is the first full term that we have um, that 6-3 majority, and already uh, there are um, um, major cases on the docket in um, some of the most divisive uh, public issues in our culture wars. Um, uh, abortion that we just discussed, but also there's a, uh, a Second Amendment case that's on the docket this term. And so we might be seeing um, some fairly significant expansion of, of doctrine in, um, in conservative um, with the, the conservative uh, tugging constitutional law showing itself quite quickly. Roe v. Wade was, has often been cited as a, as a prominent uh, case in a debate about uh, activist judges. You know, conservatives have thrown that epithet at, uh, at liberal judges, of course, but activism is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and and this uh, the tension, the role of the courts versus legislatures, right? And, and things, some things uh, should be decided according to a certain point of view in the legislature and the Congress. Roe v. Wade's right in the center of that, and uh, I, I wonder if we're going to get a, a shake-up on, on that front, if Roe v. Wade is, is overturned. Those are, um, those are uh, some of the predominant themes that we saw uh, from at least some of the justices at oral argument in the abortion case uh, that is before the court this term. So in that December argument, we uh, heard, for example, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who is one of the, uh, the new uh, Trump appointees to the court, uh, making arguments along those lines, that um, uh, uh, suggesting that, um, for example, the question of whether abortion should be legal or illegal ought to be left uh, to the individual states, that the Constitution um, and a constitutional law more broadly ought not speak to it, uh, but rather uh, that it is um, for individual state legislatures uh, to make determinations about. And so I do think that some of the themes that you've just described are um, uh, showing themselves at the court and may well show themselves in, uh, in, in the decision that we get from the court on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, um, of course, we've been talking about abortion. You mentioned Second Amendment. Any other uh, big cases or issues that, are, that you've got your eye on? Uh, so those two cases are definitely uh, the, the biggest cases that I think um, uh, people in the public are going to be watching that are going to be grabbing headlines. The Second Amendment case is a case involving a gun control law in um, New York City, and it's uh, it's poised, I think, to expand the scope of Second Amendment protection by announcing uh, – uh, we have previous cases that announce that 
um, one has a Second Amendment right to possess a a gun within um, one's own home for self-defense. But we don't have any cases from the Supreme Court yet that speak to uh, a Second Amendment right to possess a gun outside your home uh, for those purposes. And uh, the challenge in that case is a... um, is a, a a challenge to a concealed carry permit um, system in New York City, where essentially uh, you, you couldn't get a permit to carry a gun uh, out in public in um, in that metropolitan area unless you showed some very good reason for doing so. And uh, the, uh, the people who were denied that permit have challenged it on Second Amendment grounds. I think there's reason to believe that the court's new conservative majority, which has uh, um, the, the Supreme Court has avoided taking cases in this area for quite some time, uh, presumably uh, because there wasn't um, uh, there, there weren't enough justices um, to take this move in the past. Uh, it, they uh, they they look to be on the cusp of doing so. So I think those two areas are going to be um, ones to watch. Uh, there are a, a series of cases that are making their way to the Supreme Court that are of less interest to the general public, but that might be um, really substantially important for people who think about administrative law and the scope and power of the federal government, the, the power of uh, Congress to delegate authority to administrative agencies, and the power of um, uh, administrative agencies to govern all of us. Uh, and so the the sort of the size of the American um, regulatory state may well also um, be on the docket this term and um, in the terms to come. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to get into some First Amendment issues. So Ron L. Anderson-Jones um, is an affiliated fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project, Lee E. Teitelbaum, Endowed Chair and Professor of Law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Uh, she's a former newspaper reporter and editor and uh, is a First Amendment scholar, teaches, researches, and writes on legal issues affecting the press and intersection between the media and the courts. Um, we'll have more following this break. Support for 2022 legislative coverage on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. Support also comes from Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest today is Ronell Anderson-Jones, who's the Lee E. Teitelbaum Professor of Law at University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. We've been talking about the Supreme Court, the upcoming uh, or the vacancy, uh, which is occasioned by the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announcing his retirement. So uh, President Biden has a decision to make. That'll be uh, coming up, I'm sure, shortly. We've been talking about that and ramifications in history and the uh, future of the court. 
I want to get into talking about First Amendment issues, uh, and Professor Jones uh, deals with these in her studies and in her teaching. Um, I encountered this, uh, and I, I don't know why I hadn't encountered this before, Professor Jones, uh, but um, it's a New Yorker article. You know what I'm talking about here. Uh, so you... you um, you put forward in your classes, you seminars and such on the First Amendment uh, scenarios, which, you know, a good way to teach. Um, so let me let me just, quoting from this article, uh, give two scenarios that Ronald Anderson-Jones has been using uh, in her classes. So imagine a major social network bans a powerful political speaker such as a sitting president. So that's that's one, uh, one scenario. Another scenario, let's say a crowd gathers outside the White House or Capitol, riled up and maybe armed, and someone gets in front of the crowd and shouts, let's go in and hang him right now. I got my first, I mean, you couldn't make this up, right? You put this in a piece of fiction, nobody would believe you. Uh, what were your thoughts and feelings when these two things actually happened? Yeah, it is um, a, a truly interesting time to be um, uh, in the law, and particularly in legal education. Uh, uh, it was um it was a very strange experience to pull out my class notes from, you know, 15 years of teaching and realize that some of the hypotheticals that I had dreamed up, right, they were they were meant to be extreme hypotheticals that I had dreamed up to force my students to tussle with um, uh, almost outlandish uh, examples of things that they could try to think about how uh, how the First Amendment would interact with those dynamics. Uh, they, they became non-hypotheticals <laughs> after... Um, really parallel situations happened. Uh, my expectation is that that's probably true. That's uh, uh, probably um, happened in the past to other professors in other situations where uh, we our, our job is to envision um, situations that could emerge and then prepare for them legally. So, uh, but it, it is an incredibly interesting time to be thinking about um, free speech and to be thinking about uh, press freedom, and especially an interesting time to be educating students who are heading out into a world that is um, is having a lot of debates about these issues, some of which are grounded in real doctrine and some of which are just grounded in um, heated feelings, and having uh, conversations about the boundaries of free speech and about the protections that the Constitution provides um, to speakers of all sorts is a, it's a, a really vibrant, interesting moment to be doing it. Well, talk about uh, the, you know, the Twitter ban uh, of the former president, uh, President Trump. Um, maybe take us through some of the intricacies here uh, of of this debate. Uh, the the I think the rationale used by 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 Twitter and others was uh, okay. The the president, in their view, incited a mob to violence. That's a, that's a bridge too far. What about the president's free speech rights? So one of the things, uh, one of the reasons why the example is such a great one to talk about in a law school class is that it helps us tease out a doctrine that law students often are unaware of until they come uh, to constitutional law and that a lot of people uh, in the general public are unaware of. Uh, we do not have um, First Amendment free speech rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis everyone in our life. Uh, we have First Amendment free speech rights vis-a-vis -vis our government. That is, the, the, the Constitution prohibits our governmental officials from infringing on our freedom of speech. They do not, it does not um, bind any other actors who are not governmental actors. It doesn't um, bind 
uh, my employer from um, telling me what I can say or not say, and it doesn't bind uh, my neighbors from suggesting to me what I can say or not say, and it doesn't bind uh, Twitter or Facebook or other social media platforms from making determinations about the content that they will allow on their own platforms. Indeed, it protects uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook as speakers. They are themselves speakers, and so the government uh, regulating them, uh, dictating that they must con- uh, carry content that they prefer not to carry, might itself be uh, problematic under current First Amendment doctrine. Now, it's a really interesting moment for thinking about this, uh, and uh, a lot of folks have suggested that we need to start thinking more creatively about the uh, the preservation of um, free speech and free press rights in, a, in an era in which um, some of the most powerful control that is exercised over us is exercised by private platforms rather than uh, by governmental actors. But uh, on the sort of wider question of whether it violates an individual's free speech rights, uh, wh- whoever that individual is, to be banned from Twitter, uh, the, the doctrinal answer is that it does not. You don't have a First Amendment right uh, vis-a-vis Twitter. Um, Twitter has a First Amendment right to make determinations about uh, who it will host on its uh, on its platform. We have exciting conversations to have in the future about um, whether and how we will expand um, free speech norms in a a social media climate. But um, uh, to invoke First Amendment constitutional rights in that setting um, doesn't really map onto the doctrine as it exists today. This is an interesting uh, reversal, isn't it? This is the private company banning a government official. Uh, Right. Yes, it is the inside out of what we think of the First Amendment designed to uh, to protect us against. Uh, the First Amendment was included in the Constitution out of a fear uh, that, that there would be government censorship of private actors, private speakers. And so um, thinking about um, what we do when the opposite is the case um, is, a, is a real challenge. Uh, part of what we're trying to do here, and, and part of what I think First Amendment and free speech uh, scholars are working on right now, is thinking carefully about how we promote broader values of free expression and a dialogue and public discourse, um, uh, whether or not that is housed within uh, um, the First Amendment framework, I think, is um, a bigger question. And an illustration of how powerful these, uh, you know, the, this platform is, or these platforms are, and, and how powerful, therefore, the companies are. Uh, of course, part of this was, uh, you know, President uh, Trump left office. But uh, immediately, his favored platform was gone uh, from him. The, 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 this, and, and these are decisions being made by private companies. So it's, it's a very interesting debate. I want to talk about, uh, I'll just read this headline from Politico, get us into this uh, topic, which I'm sure you've, you're thinking about. Um, the, the headline is, Facebook political ad ban blocks pro-vaccine messages. Uh, so there's, you know, there's some uh, Facebook is trying to come to terms with, uh, you know, we don't want to regulate speech, <laughs> but there's pressure on us to regulate speech. Uh, I wonder if you talk about that. Yeah, I uh, I think that um, it is um, a, a fair statement to say that the major um, uh, expressive freedom questions of our day may well um, require us to focus on the powers exercised and the constraints imposed upon some of our most powerful uh, speech platforms. Um, uh, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and um, 
places where most communication on matters of public concern is now happening. Uh, it, it turns out that their individual private policies have a, a massive impact on what we're free to say to each other and and what we hear from each other and the ways that we can harm each other uh, using speech uh, and the ways that we can um, uh, generate conversations in a marketplace of ideas. And so uh, the the uneasy situating of those platforms within our um, wider dialogue is a... um, it's sort of the, the pressing moment of um, of the day, and we uh, we are thinking about that um, both in, on the, in the constitutional themes that we talked about, but also uh, there are lots of conversations about the statutory schemes that currently exist, uh, and so a, a lot of dialogue about the kind of immunity that those um, platforms have uh, in. Uh, in various uh, lawsuits that people might want to bring, the, the kinds of ways that they conceive of themselves, uh, whether they conceive of themselves as a, um, a place of, uh, of a sort of moderated dialogue or a place of a wide open um, conversation that is um, undeterred by them. Uh, all of those conversations uh, have generated a body of um, scholarship and um, literature and law that I think is going um, to become really important in the years to come. Just to have about three or four minutes left, I want to make sure we talk about this. This is interesting. Um, defamation and the, the, the lawsuits that on that uh, under that heading that the Dominion voting systems are bringing. Um, will this test the, I guess, the outer limits of defamation? There, there are, you know, this would seem to be, and uh, from some points of view, a, a slam dunk case. But I, I'm, I'm reading some scholars, I think, including you, saying, "Well, it's maybe not slam dunk." Yeah, this is a, a very big moment for uh, the intersection between First Amendment law and defamation law. Uh, we have a, a longstanding precedent in the United States that emerges from a case called New York Times versus Sullivan that says that if you are a public figure or a public official who is speaking on um, important matters of uh, uh, public concern, people are if people are speaking about you and they defame you, uh, then um, it, we make it quite hard for those people to win defamation suits. And we make it quite hard as a constitutional matter because we think it's important for there to be vibrant conversations. And we know that sometimes people will um, uh, uh, misstate facts or engage in errors when they're having those conversations, but we don't want them to self-censor. We want people to have um, open, robust conversations about matters of public concern. And there are a number of cases on the docket um, across the country that are um, going to illuminate uh, this dynamic in really interesting ways. The Smartmatic and Dominion cases that arise out of the so-called big lie allegations, um, uh, uh, cases against Fox News and um, Giuliani and others um, asserting that they um, defamed the makers of voting machines by making assertions in, um, about the 2020 election, but uh, also the Sarah Palin trial uh, that is uh, against the New York Times that is um, underway right now um, that is sort of testing the boundaries of this doctrine as well. And so uh, in a number of spaces, I think um, uh, we are going to be relaunching conversations that are going to require people to think about why we protect even false statements on um, on matters of public concern about public officials and public figures in order to keep 
um, vibrant conversation alive and protected um, in, our, in our country. Just have about a minute left. I'm curious, um, it, you know, is there something you're working on that maybe we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring up? Well, I, I'm definitely paying attention. Uh, those of us who work in the in the First Amendment space are definitely paying close attention uh, to uh, the developments that are happening in um, in defamation law, and particularly the intersection between um, the things that are happening in defamation law and the trends at the Supreme Court that we've been talking about. Uh, I'm working with a colleague named Sonia West at the University of Georgia on a large-scale empirical project that is tracking the Supreme Court's perceptions of the press and uh, perceptions, characterizations of the press and press freedom over time, and thinking about the ways that the the sort of uh, changing perception, the changing tone that the court uses about the press um, might impact um, the law of press freedom going forward. The intersection between these two areas, between uh, freedom of the press on the one hand and um, trends at the Supreme Court on the other hand is an, uh, an area of real interest to me. Yeah, very interesting. Well, we uh, appreciate you taking the time to be with us uh, today to talk about all of these subjects. Ronell Anderson-Jones is Lee E. Teitelbaum Endowed Chair and Professor of Law at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sure. Nice to be with you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. In the sky tonight at dusk, you can't miss the treasures in the night sky if you just look up and left at about a 45 degree angle for an orange star called Beta Ceti. This is the far western star of the dim, big constellation Cetus the Whale. Yeah, we're star hopping now. With Cetus the Whale in mind, we dip back down to Earth and into the oceans where whales sing their eerie songs deep below the surface and can be heard for over 600 miles. And an echo penetrates the seafloor and bounces back up. Studying the frequencies, scientists gain a low-resolution ultrasound of the Earth's crust. Wow, whales. Let's lift up now. With the little Skywatcher spacecraft, similar things going on here on Mars with NASA's Mars Insight probe that landed in 2018. Studying Mars quakes rippling through the planet, Insight's data enables scientists to get a rough idea of its mantle and thickness of its crust. Now Swiss geophysicists have fine-tuned the lander's instruments to look directly under the surface using a technique to listen to wind and oceans on Earth that shake the ground on Earth. They use that to measure and map the subsurface of Mars. And what are we looking for on Mars? Water. And we have found evidence of water flows, ancient seabeds, lakes, rivers, gorges, and ice caps. The ice caps are made mostly of water with a layer of carbon dioxide on top. This leads to the quest to find, you got it, life on Mars. And it's one sky, many cultures. In her book, The Sirens of Mars, planetary scientist Sarah Stewart Johnson, who worked on NASA Spirit Opportunity and Curiosity rovers, writes about studying microorganisms and as such relates a story written by Voltaire in 1752 about a tall, tall visitor, 120,000 feet tall. Ooh, whoa, come on. Oh, but think about how tall we are compared to a blade of grass, a grasshopper, or a gnat, or a paramecium. So this visitor initially believes the Earth is devoid of life, but continues looking around and standing in the Baltic Ocean spies a moving speck and picks it up with his fingernail. He discovers that it is a whale, then discovers another moving speck and with his magnifying glass looks in and it's a boat full of Arctic explorers. Commiserating with them about being so small and asking if they had always been in that pitiful condition, <laughs> little better than annihilation, and what they found to do on a planet that appears belonging to whales. 
Hmm. Well, we'll continue with this on our next adventure from microlife to whales on Earth, the planets and the stars. Check the website for all sources. Keep looking up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. On UPR, Utah Public Radio, with a vast array of translator stations statewide and streaming live on upr.org. If you're a regular listener of Undisciplined, you've probably noticed some changes lately. That's because Shoshana Buxbaum, who took over as our lead host last year, has accepted a new position with Science Friday. Yeah, Science Friday. We're tremendously excited for Shoshana, even if we are really sad to see her go. But every change is an opportunity, and this change has given us a chance to work with some really great guest hosts. And I'm excited to tell you today that thanks to the support of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, we've hired a new lead host. I think you're going to love Nalini Nadkarni. She's an ecologist, a teacher, and a really talented science communicator. And you'll start hearing her voice on Undisciplined this month. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org. It's time for Utah Public Radio's annual Art Mug Contest, and we're asking for your entries now through February 18th. You can use any artistic medium for your design. Just show us what you love about UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. You'll all get to vote on your favorite design, and the winner will be printed on this year's mug, available during our spring member drive. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, by February 18th. This week in This American Life, Jane had always wanted to live by the water and got a house on a cliff. My bedroom was right on the ocean, and I was in the bedroom in my queen-size bed, <laughs> sat up, and my backyard was gone. But while houses were collapsing into the ocean, her neighbors still didn't want to move. That's this week. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.